This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. When we look at motifs in the Bible, motifs are meant to be heard by subsequent audiences in a way that causes a resonance to the truth that's being communicated. Hello, welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm Jonathan Master, joined here as always with James Dolezal, and today we have the privilege of having Brian Estelle with us. He's just written a book called Echoes of Exodus, Tracing a Biblical Motif. It's published by IVP, and Brian's professor of Old Testament at Westminster Seminary, California, and he's authored other books as well, Salvation Through Judgment and Mercy, but we're going to talk about the Exodus book today, so Brian, thanks for joining us. You bet. Good to be with you. I wanted to just start by asking, we know what the Exodus is. Probably all of our listeners are familiar with the Exodus story, but what's an echo of Exodus, and how do we know whether something is an echo of Exodus? Let me answer that in two parts. First of all, uh, I went into my project with assumptions about what the Exodus is, and then primarily through questions asked by students who were pushing me for sharp definitions on the Exodus, I found that subsequent biblical writers, when they were reflecting back on the Exodus in Scripture, actually referred to it not merely as coming out of the iron-blasting furnace of tyranny under Pharaoh in Egypt, but it was a whole complex of events. So being liberated from Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, uh, wandering in the wilderness to Sinai, uh, which is symbolic for the presence of God, then wandering in the wilderness again up to the cusp of entering into the Promised Land, and then actually crossing the Jordan and, and conquering the land. And so when later biblical writers refer to the Exodus, many refer to that whole complex of ideas. So I found that the Exodus was synecdoche, the part for the whole salvation. And then also I was trying to develop the notion of illusion confidence. How do we know when a theme or a motif is being uh, referred to in subsequent writers in the scriptures? in this case, the Exodus. And so I developed a fourfold scheme. We have direct citation, where a citation is usually introduced. For example, the scripture says, and then subtle citation, where you can see it's almost an identical citation, but without that formula. And then allusion, where the original narrator or author is trying to cue in a subsequent hearer that he is making an illusion, and then finally an echo, which uh, demands more proof on the part of an interpreter to establish that there is a genuine echo to something in the scriptures that may not have even been intended by the human author and narrator, but nevertheless the fine author intends for us to grasp, so we have a thicker understanding. In your book, you deal with Exodus as a theme that runs uh, all the way from early parts of the Pentateuch to the book of Revelation itself, and you even described it as a synecdoche, a shorthand for salvation. I I was even thinking of how uh, in Deuteronomy 32, when Moses says, you neglected the rock who begot you and, and forgot God who gave you birth, would not Exodus be that event that he's referring to? In seeing this as a theme, this this as a shorthand for salvation itself, and as something that we can trace throughout the scriptures, what are ways in which the Exodus event is reactualized and, as you say, recontextualized in later biblical books, so that it's not simply a 
reference or a remembrance to the historical event, but that the the motif itself is actually being developed along with the progress of redemption? Yeah, sure. Uh, great question. When we look at motifs in the Bible, motifs are meant to be heard by subsequent audiences in a way that causes a resonance to the truth that's being communicated, similar to how an original audience uh upon seeing, observing, or even hearing of the event would have responded. And so when you begin to look through the scriptures, Old and New Testament, and trace out this theme of the and motif of the Exodus, we see that the scriptural writers are not just merely repeating the event. They're also using these historical facts and events narrated in the past to um, encourage, console, new audiences in the future under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, I would say, uh, and uh, later subsequent writers in many different genres, many different forms, so that they too may be encouraged based on the fact that God has acted powerfully in the past, so too he can act powerfully in the present, and then also with hope, so too he can act powerfully in the future. So real quickly, you know, we start with the original Exodus, but then we begin to trod through uh, redemptive history. We see, for example, that the prophets, especially Isaiah, in chapters 40 through 66, takes up the Exodus and and starts to develop uh, a new hope for a new Exodus. So now it's no longer uh, making a way, which is very important language for Isaiah, making a way through the sea. It's making a way back through the wilderness, out of exile, as he consoles the exiles in the future, that, that God's going to make a way similar to the former Exodus, but a, a way now through the desert. And then it uses paradisical language to talk about returning to the promised land. But it's all fraught with tension. <laughs> in other words, it's not fulfilled, even in post-exilic times. And so that leads to an expectation for a new and final exodus uh, that Christ, the Messiah, would fulfill. He's the greater Moses. His exodus far outstrips the uh, former exodus, whether in Isaiah or in uh, the original exodus. And uh, he provides a liberation not just from Pharaoh, but from the tyranny of the devil, and uh, a liberation from sin, and a way to be delivered unto salvation, ultimately into the world to come. Let me push on that a little bit. Sometimes when we read Isaiah, I'm thinking of Isaiah 43, where he recounts the the historic first exodus and then says, do not call to mind the former, former things or ponder things of the past. I will do something new. Will you not be aware of it? And it is easy to think that the, the nearest horizon of fulfillment perhaps is the only horizon of fulfillment, the return of some exiles from Chaldea or something like that. Uh, and you're you're arguing that the promises of the prophets, uh, that that horizon of fulfillment, doesn't really come to a full realization in simply the return of some Jewish exiles, but it looks to the gospels, it looks to a fulfillment in Christ. And I find it, I think some of our readers, some of your readers, our listeners, will find it interesting. Uh, that you see the gospels themselves as in in some important way structured around this Exodus motif. Could you say something about how the Gospels themselves are a, uh, a, a development, an advancement, a fulfillment even, of the promise of second Exodus that we find in the prophets? 
Sure. I'll try and make it brief. That's a big topic. But several right. I, I know I set a tall order, so. Yeah, but I'll, I'll try I'll try and keep it succinct and brief. Uh, if the readers do decide to pick up the book and read it, I'd encourage you to read it from start to finish and not cherry pick or go to your favorite section of scripture in the book. The opening chapter is about hermeneutics and I, you know, how we interpret scripture. And I think ultimately the answer is bringing a biblically-based and Reformation-based uh, hermeneutic to the text. So, for example, when the prophets speak, they speak with a single census literalis, in other words, a literal sense in the Reformation category of that. However, even though there can be a single sense, a single census literalis, nevertheless, that single sense can have multiple landing points, multiple trajectories in subsequent scripture. This is a hermeneutic developed by our Reformation forefathers. I have Calvin particularly in mind. He actually went to a secular professor of rhetoric and literature, Quintilian in Rome, who was appointed by Vespasian to have a chair of rhetoric, where he developed this notion called complexus, where uh, Calvin said this fits perfectly with Scripture. There is a single sense to Scripture, but it may have multiple landing points, multiple reference points. And so I would say that, for example, in Isaiah, and you brought up chapter 43, that, well, yeah, on an initial landing point, it's true. It's referring to those exiles being brought back from Persia to, the, um, to their land. But it's not fulfilled there, uh, ultimately. It also has landing points in the Gospels. And it's interesting you bring Isaiah 43 up because I have high level of confidence that even John in the Apocalypse picks that up in chapter 21, uh, verses 1 to 11, where he talks about a new paradise language. So don't look to the former things. Don't look to the old Exodus. Look to the new Exodus. And John in the Apocalypse shows that ultimately that's fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. Where interestingly, there will be no more sea. Why will there be no more sea? Well, it's a, it's a symbol of chaos. It's a symbol of thwarting the pathway across chaos, across barriers to worship the one true God at the mountain of his presence. Well, Christ has destroyed uh, chaos, Christ, you know, and his perfect work on the cross as human mediator and divine mediator, and so there is no more sea. Uh, one question I wanted to ask, standing between Isaiah's prophecy and its farthest horizon of fulfillment in the new heavens and new earth, particularly, and I'm thinking here of Jesus' transfiguration, where Jesus describes himself as having to undergo exodus. We already get that early in Matthew's gospel where he says that Christ going to Egypt and then being called out of Egypt was to fulfill the words of Hosea 11. I think that Exodus connection, while it may trouble some interpreters, is kind of there and obvious. There's one that is perhaps a little more oblique at first reading, and yet no less important when he's speaking with Moses and Elijah on the mountain. Can you say something about that passage and how it relates to the Exodus with respect to Jesus's work in Jerusalem? Yeah, I really wrestled over that passage. You hinted at the fact that commentators are all over the map on that. The Greek word there can be translated as merely departure, or it can be translated as exodus. And in Greek, that's what it sounds like. If I remember right, it's in the Accusius of Exodon. And my editor even pushed me on this, who happened to be a New Testament scholar. As I was mitigating, going for the golden mean, he said, now, Brian, come on, you've been arguing all the way along. 
And it, it looks to me like he's referring to more than his mere departure. And so I really wrestled over this passage and I came to the conviction that indeed Christ is talking about his new exodus. And if the reader looks at chapter nine, uh, section 51, a loose paraphrase, it basically says he set his jaw or he set his direction to Jerusalem. In other words, as we take the transfiguration scene there in, in Luke 9, and Christ is talking about his exodus that he's going to fulfill, and then he sets his jaw like flint to Jerusalem, and then all the miracles, all the attestations of you know the Messiah having come, the true divine and human mediator, to bring salvation and true Christian liberty. All those things are to be understood in light of his second activist, which he fulfills at the cross. And then, of course, descends into the grave and into uh, hell, as the creed says, under the wrath of God, properly interpreted. And then is raised from, from the dead for our justification. So this is the great conquest and liberation which Christ has performed. He's released us from our sins and the journey of the devil. Excellent. So Christ under the mastery of death, but no longer uh, resurrected and alive unto God is, in fact, the embodiment of Exodus itself from death unto life to the presence of God. Exactly. My pastor preached on this. He's been preaching through Luke and was preaching on the resurrection last Sunday and brought a lot of this out. Uh, and um, it was very edifying. And of course, that's my hope. Uh, with this long project is that ultimately it will find its way into the hands of preachers and teachers who will break open the word of life and, and encourage people uh, with the consolation of Christ's greater second act of this and his resurrection uh, from the dead. That leads perfectly into my last question, which is when you survey the way in which this motif appears, it, particularly in the epistles, uh, the uh, how how does this how should this affect our understanding of the of the Christian life and sort of where does it position us as as part of the church? How does this flesh out where we are and 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 how we should think about our, our Christian lives? Yeah, great question. And of course, again, uh, we we could have a long conversation about that, but I'll try and keep it succinct. Uh, I think one of the ways that I came to think about that and I guess be reaffirmed in a conviction is that if the Exodus motif is synecdoche, in other words, in story form of our salvation, the whole complex of salvation, so our justification, our uh, union with Christ, our liberation from sin and tyranny of the devil, even our sanctification when you think about the parallels with the wilderness track and how First Peter picks up the fact that we're sojourners and exiles, uh, you know, pilgrimaging towards the world to come. It makes a great deal of difference to know that we are truly forgiven, that we are truly liberated, that Christ has done all the work necessary in order that we may receive the just and right commendation from our Heavenly Father, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. So that then we can get on with the work, the hard work of sanctification. It makes all the world a difference, just like with the woman who wiped our Savior's feet with her hair and anointed his feet. It makes all the world a difference to know that we are truly forgiven 
and that the devil has no legal claim over us whatsoever anymore. And that does not give us grounds for antinomianism, uh, by no means, uh, but rather it should motivate us to be extremely grateful for the blood-bought uh, sacrifice of our Savior and also for his probation-keeping uh, perfect work, which he uh, did, fulfilling the righteousness that was necessary, that the first Adam didn't fulfill and that the Son of God, namely Israel, didn't fulfill. Christ has done it all. Brian, thanks for your time with us today, and thanks for your work on this book, an incredibly rich volume. And I think you mentioned this earlier in our conversation, but I would echo it again, no pun intended, but uh, that, that, that <laughs> readers should go you know, from cover to cover and meditate on the kinds of things that you're drawing out. So thanks for your time today, and thanks for your work on the book. Yeah, you bet, and thank you for the privilege of joining your show, and uh, blessings on your men's work as well. So, James, I want to echo again what I said at the end. I wasn't just uh, saying it because Brian was listening in. I really do want to commend this volume to our readers. You've mentioned to me before on several occasions how much you've benefited from his other writings. And so I want to talk a little bit about that. And then I want to make a, a comment, not so much about this book, but about this kind of book. So, but talk about the other books that he's written. Yeah, it's worth mentioning because the only other, I think, full-length book prior to this, and he has something else in the works, and we'll just let that be known later. But other than this is a book called Salvation Through Judgment and Mercy. And it's a small exposition of the book of Jonah. And it is... It is really superb. I guess I want to say to our readers, this is an excellent writer, a very clear thinker who is able to see Christ in all the scriptures and yet in a way that is persuasively exegeted from the scriptures, in a way that is corroborated by other parts of the scriptures. Uh, and if if what he has done in his work on Jonah, which I've benefited from so much, I'm sure that our readers are going to find that same type of benefit even exponentially in this much longer work on exodus yeah and i would end by saying this when i read books like this echoes of exodus or the shorter one that you just described on jonah and there are there are a few gems like this it's not just brian estelle there are other writers who do this it makes me realize how rich the scriptures are and how i I'm only beginning to scratch the surface. And actually, I think the people whom I know who are near the end of their Christian lives, when they talk about their study of the Bible, that's what they say. I, I just feel like I'm barely scratching the surface. I guess what I'm saying is that's not a discouraging thought. No, that should be that should be an energizing and a strong motivation to, again, come to the scriptures and expect that there are riches there yet to be mined. Yeah. I think maybe for someone who is uh, in a sort of a cycle of boredom, perhaps, with their Bible reading, who thinks that they basically have nailed the biblical message in all of its nuances, uh, large and and small. They have really mastered the detail. Uh, And if they need to sort of have their heart rekindled with interest and curiosity and wonder at what God has done in Christ with with a close and careful read of the text, Echoes of Exodus by Brian Estelle may be just the book to sort of stir your heart again to look deeply in a, in a new and fresh way at the scriptures. Yeah, and if you somehow are thinking, and I hope none of our listeners are thinking this, but if you're, if you're thinking, I've heard people say this, you know, well, we know what the Bible says, or we've, we've read that and, and kind of gotten beyond it, and now we have to talk about methods or something like that. 
you need to read a book like this and right. be humbled and, by it. And it's not one of those things where we say, forget everything you've ever known about the Bible and start over. Not at but all. Actually, the opposite. Try to hold in mind everything you've ever known about the Bible and think it through in a richer way with the help of someone who is really plying his craft as a biblical scholar expertly, but in service to the church. This is the kind of thing I imagine pastors doing sermon series and Sunday school series based on this book as a guide, helping them through that for their people, bringing this to the congregation. I think this, I think this is the kind of book that has lots of promise for that sort of thing. Yeah. We like putting books in your hands. And so if you'd like to register for the opportunity to possibly win a copy of this book, a free copy of this book, you can do that by going to placefortruth.org, clicking on the Theology on the Go link, and registering to win a copy of Echoes of Exodus by Brian Estelle. That is provided by our good friends at IVP. What an excellent volume. Thanks, as always, for listening to Theology on the Go. If you think there might be others who would benefit from this podcast, please pass it along. And if you're able to help by making a donation, you can do that at placefortruth.org. There's a donate button there or alliancenet.org. You can do the same thing there. And once again, thank you for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.